This is the Consciousness Podcast, and I'm your host, Stuart Preston. Each episode, I have a conversation with an expert in human consciousness. In this episode, I had the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Cassandra Veaton, who is the president of the Institute of Noetic Sciences and a scientist at the Mind-Body Medicine Research Group at California Pacific Medical Center Research Institute. Dr. Veaton is a licensed clinical psychologist and has been with IONS since 2001, previously serving as its executive director of research. We had a great conversation and covered consciousness, interconnectedness, spirituality, and much more. Please enjoy this episode with Dr. Cassandra Veaton. Okay, Dr. Veaton, I, I do appreciate you uh, being here for the Consciousness Podcast. And obviously, um, I've had some connection with the Institute of Noetic Sciences through um, Dr. Dean Radin, who was on a few episodes ago to talk about some of his amazing experiments. And so I'm really grateful that you're here today to talk to me. Sure, happy so, to be here. Awesome. I'd like to know what your view of human consciousness is. I mean, everything from universal consciousness, mind-body binding problems, survival. I just, I'm curious to know kind of how you look at and define consciousness. Yeah, well, I really define it on a few different levels. Um, one is sort of a personal consciousness or waking consciousness, which you could sort of call small C consciousness, meaning awareness of the things that you know that you're aware of. Um, right. You know, so I'm looking around the room right now and I can see tables and chairs. I know I'm talking to you. I have a sense of my own existence. That's sort of waking consciousness. Mm -hmm. And then there's, to me, a bigger consciousness that is still on the personal level that is everything that you are conscious of in ways that you're aware of and not aware of. So, in other words all of your awareness, but also all of your implicit, subconscious, non-conscious worldviews, assumptions, um, all of the belief systems or automated behaviors and habits that we all have. In a way, that's part of your consciousness too. And one of the examples I use, we, we have a consciousness program for kids, or actually for teachers of kids called Worldview Explorations. And we say to them, you know, let's say a kid is walking down the hallway and another kid bumps into him and he says, Hey, what's your problem? You know? And then mm -hmm. another kid's walking down the hall and someone bumps into him and he says, Hey, sorry, are you okay? Um, so those two kids are holding a different consciousness about the world. The first kid is maybe holding a consciousness that things are like sort of dangerous and people are, out to get you and you have to defend yourself, whereas the second kid is holding a consciousness that is like everybody's pretty much doing their best, we're all in this together, and that dictates their behavior. So they, they may not be aware of it, but that's a consciousness they're holding. And then there's collective consciousness, which is the consciousness that a whole group holds about something or um, a society or even humanity as a whole. You know, what we think is possible, what we think is impossible, how we categorize things, um, so that's collective consciousness. And then some people use kind of like a big C consciousness to refer to the idea that everything in reality has a, you could say, a physical aspect and a non-physical or immaterial aspect of it. Um, and that even, you know, a rock or a table has a tiny bit of consciousness it may not be the right. way that we recognize it, but that concept or sort of a panpsychism speaks to a larger consciousness that um, may be, you know, may exist. Right. And I heard you mention that. And I don't know if that's uh, exactly what you were talking about at the time, but in one of your talks or papers, I saw you mention that consciousness could be I don't know if you put it this way, but a primary component of the universe, right along with matter and energy, is that right, kind right. of tie into this actually, notion of panpsychism, or what do you think? Well, that actually came from Edgar Mitchell, who is our the founder of the Institute of right. Noetic Sciences, and he was an Apollo 14 astronaut who was the sixth person to walk on the moon. And on his way back to the Earth, he had the window seat and the space capsule, and he had sort of a deep, profound epiphany about number one, kind of sensing the interconnectedness of all things 
and mm-hmm. feeling like an intelligence or a light or kind of order was shining through everything that the universe is not just a random assortment of things that have sort of uh, happened to bump into each other since the big bang. Um, And so when I talked to him shortly before he died, I said, you know, what are you up to next, Edgar? You know, what's, what are you, what's your, what are you excited about? And he just said, you know, that we've been taught that the universe is made of matter and energy. And I think we're learning that it's made of matter, energy, and consciousness. And it's that third element that I'm most interested in investigating. And so in your investigations, I know we're probably going to get into this in a few other questions later on, but, you know, matter, we, we can pretty much measure and play with, and same thing with energy. What, what is this, uh, this component of consciousness? What are, you, what are your thoughts and ideas on, what's, on what that may end up being once we can start to, to play with it? I mean, there are things yeah. like gravity we can't really get a grasp of, but we can measure. Yeah. You know, yeah, we can, so how, we how do you see consciousness it. playing out? Yeah, I mean, at a very basic level, we know that how you think about things shapes your behavior. It shapes your perceptions. Um, So the way you think about things or perceive things alters the actual way that you even perceive them. Um, And it alters how what your response is in relationship to what happens in your world. Um, So if you have a consciousness that, let's say, people outside of my my ethnic group are less trustworthy, then when you see somebody outside of your ethnic group, you're already going to be saying, you know, in what way are, in what way should I not trust that person? So that kind of affects your perception and your behavior around that person. On a more positive note, how you think and what you believe and what you intend um, has an effect on your own body. And there are very good studies now showing that if you pay attention to your breathing and your body sensations, you know, if you engage in mindfulness practices, which come out of traditions that are, have been around for millennia, it actually changes the function of your brain and even the structure of your brain So just turning your attention toward your breathing and your body sensations changes the way your brain is built and the way it functions. And your hormones, your immunity, you know, any number of things in your body. And so we know that your consciousness impacts reality in that way. And what we're investigating also at IONS is, is it possible that your consciousness affects other people's bodies or other people's consciousness, um, either locally or at a distance? And is it even possible that your consciousness impacts physical reality? And those are sort of controversial and radical ideas, but most people have experienced some form of non-local consciousness when they've been thinking about a friend that they hadn't talked to in a long time and they call on the phone that day or you know, they um, know that someone they love is in trouble at a distance and they call and find out that it's true. Um, Multiple other examples of what are extraordinary but actually quite common and universal experiences people have of their consciousness potentially perceiving and reaching beyond their individual self. And um, so if there is a sort of... um, interconnected aspect of reality and our own consciousness has the capacity to tap into that interconnected fabric, it makes sense that we could potentially have an influence on um, other things, other people, other consciousnesses, um, even at a distance. Have you looked at, uh, and I know that's one of the things you mentioned before, have you looked at things like Reiki? Right. Yeah. So energy healing you know, we call it energy healing, um, but it's not the same kind of energy healing as, you know, that you could reduce to saying, well, we know that they're beaming this specific energy at that person from a machine or, you know, infrared light or something. Right. What we're really talking about is consciousness there. We're saying that they are, um, they are able to use their intention 
to have some perceived or purported effect on another person's body. And it may be through a sort of energy, which to date we haven't really been able to measure. So it's totally theoretical and it could be 100% placebo effect. We really don't know yet. Um, Mm -hmm. But that's what the science is all about is saying, you know, if there's any chance that people just sending intention, visualizing an energy coming from their visual, their body into another person's body, and that that is having a positive effect for that person, even sometimes when they don't know whether or not they're sending it, um, that's important. We want to discover what's going on. Is it a placebo effect? And if so, how do we enhance it? And or is there something beyond the individual's expectation or belief that is going on there? And that's what you guys are doing. You guys are formulating and conducting experiments to try to answer these questions. We do. Yeah. At IONS, we have um, the largest team that we're aware of in the world that are studying these topics related to things like non-local consciousness and energy healing and So our overarching hypothesis here that we're testing in a number of ways is that there's an aspect of reality that is interconnected and that we, when humans tap into it, they access information and energy not limited by traditional notions of space and time and that that leads to healing, innovation, and transformation in ways that don't happen otherwise. And so that's the idea is that there are practices and experiences people have where they, like Edgar Mitchell did, tap into or recognize or become aware of some um, invisible but very real aspect of reality. And that when they do that, either through meditation or yoga, shamanic practices, psychedelics, energy work, you know, all of the different noetic kinds of practices that people can engage in, that they actually do have the opportunity to access information and energy that they couldn't access otherwise and that are not necessarily limited by time or space. Right. Yeah, and I want to come back to the healing part of it, but since we're on the subject... Um, I'd like to know more about, you know, some examples of these experiments. You know, like I mentioned, I talked to Dr. Radin about his double slit experiment and he mentioned, I think his uh, Murphy's law experiment. And, you know, if you can just tell us about some of the things you guys have going on in the experiments and what kind of reaction you've gotten from those. I know that this is an area that uh, it seems very difficult to actually run experiments and collect data, but you guys are doing some, some pretty cool things over there. Yeah, yeah, we've been lucky to be able to do this work um, through the generosity of the members of the Institute of Noetic Sciences and um, a number of foundations and individuals. And so Marilyn Schlitz was the former president and um, before that director of research at IONS who really, along with Dean Radin, built the lab here. And they have done pioneering work in things like separating two people into two different rooms that are unconnected. Um, They have one person, the receiver, in a room that is a shielded 2,000-pound steel box, and they hook them up to autonomic measures, brain measures, EEG, things like that. And then the other person is sort of the sender, and they're in a completely separate room. And they... um, will be asked to do things like pay attention to the person who's in the receiving room, sometimes through a video feed, for example, Um, then withdraw their attention and think about something else, send intention, withdraw their intention, send intention, withdraw their attention. And what they find is that during those intention periods where the sender was really focused on the receiving person, there are changes in that person's physiology, even though they don't have any way of knowing when those sending periods are or when the withdrawal periods are. They've also done things like exposed the person who's the sender to a very 
bright light flash in a set of goggles or a very loud sound and, and at an unexpected time. And they see a big response, of course, in that person, but they also see a significant, statistically significant echo of that response in the receiving person. Again, even though there should be no way that they can detect when those things are happening and yeah. multiple other kinds of experiments trying to get at that non-local consciousness. Um, and then as Dean was telling you, you know, many experiments working on just purely physical systems where somebody's trying to send their intention into an optical um, photon system and try to see if observation using only the mind's eye changes the behavior of photons down at the quantum level. Yeah, and that was quite remarkable because there were also different results based on individuals who did uh, mindfulness meditation. Sure, yeah, people who, which sort of supports our idea that, um, that people actually have to spend some time tapping into that realm in order to be able to be more likely to, sometimes I say influence it, but it's a little bit more like um, resonate with it. You know, it's, it doesn't seem to yeah. be an effortful influencing. It seems to be more like when they are able to recognize it or observe it, then something changes in the system it also may be, and Dean probably said this, that they're just better at focusing, you know, so right. <laughs> their the experiments take a lot of focus. So maybe they're just better at um, staying yeah, focused in. And, and also keeping their narrative or their distractions out of, their, out of the way. Yeah. 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 I call those thought secretions. Yeah. 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 Right. Yeah. It's interesting that because I saw the, the image you put up with the brains, the brain scans or the activity. And it must have really, uh, you guys must have been so thrilled, I would guess, or, you know, I guess you maybe try not to be emotional about it, but when you mm -hmm. saw the activity in the two brains and how they correlated in such a finite amount of time mm -hmm. between those two subjects, you know, that must have been an amazing thing to observe. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we are like, we're very happy when we can try to demonstrate something that so many people have reported subjectively. And... um you know, we're also pretty interested when we get negative results. You know, we're we're just trying to discover what what's happening in terms of these um, subjective reports that so many people have of being feeling like they were healed by energy or that they could feel the intention of another person. Or um, it's kind mm -hmm. of a a wide open field for exploration. Yeah. And what kind of uh, what kind of criticisms have you gotten on this, or have other people been able to replicate the the experiment and get similar results? I mean, what what other third party? I don't know if the right word is verification, but what kind of third party verifications yeah. have been done out there? Yeah, I mean, there's uh, there's not there aren't that many people doing this work. It's very hard to get it funded, and yeah, um, there have been certainly some replications of the distant intention data through people like Leanna Standish at Bastyr University and other people um, around the world, um, that kind of distant intention. And then um, with some of the physics experiments, there have been mixed results in terms of replication or non-replication. It's a very new field of inquiry. Um, but there's certainly a lot of interest from the public and from healing professionals, educational professionals, people who are interested in these topics or have had these kinds of experiences. And then there's also a lot of criticism um, by the scientific community, some of which is valid and a lot of which is very much sort of like this is a scientific taboo. And the, the idea that comes from those folks is that you really shouldn't study these topics. They're not amenable to scientific investigation. They're not worthwhile. They're not worthwhile to spend money on. They're, um, they're so far out of what we currently believe is possible in the mainstream that we shouldn't go that far, that somehow examining these things is going to contaminate science somehow. And, you know, I totally disagree with that. I think that these are experiences people have that are very, very important to them. Um, they do seem to have some 
subjectively reported profound impacts on people's lives. And they also call into question our ideas about the nature of reality and our own human potential. And, you know, one of the, you know, I think if, if you believe that we have now discovered everything there is to know about the nature of reality and everything there is to know about human potential, then I guess that's one way to look at the world, but I highly doubt that. And I think these are really important things to look at. And I think they're completely possible to study scientifically, just yeah. like any other natural phenomenon. Yeah, I agree. And I'm glad you guys are, are doing it. I know there is a, there's always a lot of skepticism out there. And even, you know, I've been eavesdropping on the a heated debate between Robin Carhart Harris and Bernardo Castrop on their, their differing views on, on consciousness and reality. So it's always good to at least have have the conversations going. So I agree with you on that. It's good to have a good heated debate and have information scrutinized and and, and analyzed. And so I'm glad that you guys are are keeping that up. Yeah. So let's move on to the healing part then. So I know that that your focus, if I'm correct about this, it seems like your focus. Um, it, it may, I guess as a psychologist, you add this the element of spirituality into treatment. Is that right? Well, yeah, there's a part of my work and IONS overall that is interested in, in a way you could think of it as restoring the balance. You know, there was a time, you know, 400, 500, 600 years ago, where everything was a spiritual explanation. You know, all mental illness, all physical illness was, you know, a problem with the person's spiritual condition somehow. And then we, you know, in a good way, we brought in the biological sort of, wait a minute, there's also biological things happening that could explain this. And um, let's look at, let's measure and observe and, you know, use science to look at it. But then that kind of swung us all the way over to the other end where it was like, this is all completely physical, you know, all depression, all anxiety, all addiction, is all just um, the brain gone haywire and it's all possible to um, cure or address using medication or, you know, some other form of physical work. And I think that that's a just as mistaken as the completely spiritual explanation. And so what we're really trying to do is bring um, the spiritual dimension back into mental health care and at the very least, have people who are trained as psychotherapists or people providing mental health care services to people, ask them about their spiritual and religious beliefs, ask them if they're part of a spiritual or religious community, um, ask them, you know, what's the most meaningful or sacred thing to you in this life? And what do you think happens when we die? And do you believe in a God? And if so, what role is god or spirit playing in your illness and you know even if you don't believe in any of that just asking the question of the patient and helping them bring in their spiritual resources as an aid to their mental health and well-being is going to improve mental health care tremendously and i believe that it hasn't been included for the same reasons we just talked about the science is you know mental health care psychology has been dominated by behaviorism and then um, more psychobiology recently. And those are both true. Those are both very good insights, but it doesn't mean, or and cognitive therapy for that matter, um, but it doesn't mean that we shouldn't also bring in the spiritual dimensions of people's lives. And when I use the word spiritual, I don't necessarily mean religious. I mean, all the religious practices that people might have, but also just their ideas of meaning and purpose and joy and hope and, you know, the bigger ideals of life, you know, truth and beauty and justice and where do all of those things fit into mental health treatment? Um, Right now, there's just a very strong emphasis on the way you think and changing the way you think and monitoring medication And those are important, but leaving out this other dimension makes it so that somebody who's deeply depressed could go into mental health care and for two years not be asked one time any of these questions about the larger meaning. 
And that's just doing a disservice to our patients. And I, I find that personally interesting because I am not at all what I would call religious. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure, I would, I'm not even sure if I would describe myself as spiritual, even, mm-hmm. to be honest with you. But as I listen to what you're talking about, you know, two things come to mind. One is, and, and I wish I knew the details, um, somebody out there did a study of different um, cultures or groups of people around mm-hmm. the world who live to be 100. Are you familiar mm-hmm. with what I'm talking about? I'm not it's, sure. Uh, the one, uh, yeah, they did it just a, a, a data study, and they mm-hmm. found pockets, pockets of little societies around, and they're in crazy places like South America. I mean, South America is not a crazy place, but it's yeah, like yeah, right. you would not necessarily expect it. And like maybe a little pocket, that's, there was some place in America and then an island in, in Japan where people lived to be 100. And one of the, I think he had like five components, including eating a mostly vegetarian diet. Uh-huh, so one of them uh-huh. was... One of them was having a spiritual community. Right, right. And so when you said that, I, I thought to myself, wow, that was one of the five things this guy said to help people live to be 100. Yeah. And I imagine you also don't live to be 100 if you're not spiritually or at least emotionally somewhat healthy. And yeah. then there was another one, um, the book by Victor Franken. What is his uh, name? Frankel. Frankel? Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I think the whole the whole central theme of that book was have a purpose in life. That's right. In order to survive a horrible experience and it's kind of like what I'm hearing you talk about is to when you're helping somebody emotionally if you it can help connect into that spiritual purpose. Right. That purpose in life that that's a a vital component of what you're what you're doing with them. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, I mean there's some idea that part of what a spiritual community does for people is very obvious. Like they have more social support, more people deliver meals to them. They have a ride to the doctor when they're sick, you know, things that are very explainable. But most of the studies on spirituality and health show that there is even above all that, when you control for all that, there's an independent contribution of people's spiritual practice and engagement in spiritual communities on their health and well-being. And I think it's partly because um, so many illnesses are stress-related, for one thing, um, and they mm. part of how people effectively deal with stress is that they have a sort of, um, it, it, it seems to be that some of the most recent research shows that a form of acceptance or surrender to whatever the situation is and to whatever you're feeling and sort of, I guess in a religious sense, you'd say you're, you know, you're trusting God or you're trusting your spiritual source that something that they're in charge and something's happening. And, you know, you kind of give up your agency as opposed to the idea that you should be the hero of your own journey and, you know, control everything as much as you possibly can. And, you know, it turns out that those, that causes more stress. So it may be that just the overall outlook of people who have um, sort of a religious or spiritual practice or community reduces their stress and improves their well-being. Um, And, you know, probably a lot of other things too. There's also a lot of help in spiritual communities for engaging in um, healthier behaviors, you know, in terms of, as you say, vegetarianism or not drinking so much or not smoking so much. You know, those are things that are typically in spiritual communities. There's some support provided for staying in alignment with your long-term goals for yourself. Yeah. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. And I guess also that it seems to tie back to something else you said about the, your, your consciousness, your awareness, having a, an effect on the physical body as stress does seem to break down your immune system also, doesn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. yeah stress and fear and also loneliness. I mean, there's really a epidemic of loneliness in culture, especially among older people And there's something about, even if you're not in a spiritual community, a lot of the spiritual practices, as we were talking about earlier, somehow help you feel more connected to everyone or to, you know, even to a spiritual 
source or something and, and feeling that sense of belonging or connection. Again, going back to Edgar's experience where he said, you know, it wasn't just that the universe was beautiful. It's that there was some intelligence in the universe and that I was a yeah. part of it. That experience of self-transcendence where you feel a sense of belonging can really be an antidote to the isolation and loneliness that a lot of people encounter, which I think is also um, stressful for the body and the system. Yeah, and that kind of leads to my next question was about psychedelics specifically. You had mentioned that earlier. And one of the things, and, there's, and you made me think of something else. So psychedelics tend to, the experience of psychedelics does seem to bring about this feeling of interconnectedness. Mm -hmm. That's something that, that people report. Mm -hmm. they, once I've done this, and I know even back in uh, the, the, maybe the early 60s, at Harvard when they did the studies, you know, they had some people take a dose of LSD, and they reported being being very spiritual for the rest of their lives. Some people mm -hmm. even went on to become, you know, religious practice. And so it's something, even just after one use, they felt yeah. this connectedness that made them feel that way. Um, and then there was something else along along those lines. But I think that, you know, when you look at, at all this, you, and you keep hearing about this, this interconnectedness, mm -hmm. um, is, is psychedelics, specifically something that you've actually looked at to see what people report and what they experience and have that shed any light into your, your own um, use of spirituality and, and working, you know, with your, your patients or within your studies? Yeah. I mean, you know, recently, even in the past year, I think it was only just a couple months ago that the FDA approved breakthrough status for psilocybin as a treatment for treatment-resistant depression, which is amazing. You know, there's enough data mm -hmm. now showing that one session in the correct set and setting and with preparation and with integration counseling afterwards has enough of an effect on depression that even the FDA is granting it kind of a fast-track um, approval. That's amazing. Um, there's also yeah, and also with terminal patients. I don't yes, know. Done exactly. a lot of studies that, that you mentioned, people feel lonely, and it must feel extremely lonely when when diagnosed with a terminal illness. Right. You know, you right. must feel like, why me, or what's going on at the end of life? And and I know that the studies they've done with with terminal patients has also had an, an amazing impact on their lives. That's right. That's right. Yeah, and um, there was also these great studies at Johns Hopkins several years ago, um, but within the last decade, um, where they took healthy folks and gave them, a, you know, a, a, a protocol uh, with psilocybin and then with a control that was also a little bit mind-altering. Um, and they showed that the people who had the psilocybin sessions, you know, rated it as one of the top five experiences of their lifetime. Um, mm. Even like a year later, it's and it really had lasting positive effects for them. So I think there's no question that with appropriate preparation, uh, the correct set and setting, integration processes and counseling, um, psychedelics are one of the most reliable methods for giving people a glimpse into the experience of not being in the tyranny of mind, you know, for... Yeah. four, five, six hours. And when that mind, that, that narrative structure is allowed to disappear, sometimes I think of it as like Gulliver's Travels, you know, where the, the ego or the controlling mind or that big narrative categorizing mind gets tied down for a little while, you get a sense of freedom and liberation. And some people would say you get a glimpse into the true nature of reality, which is interconnected and full of love. And that really changes the way you view the world and that changes the way you think and your behavior. And so that's really what my whole work has been throughout my whole life is how can we create environments and practices and experiences that shift people's perspective or worldview, their understanding of themselves and the nature of how the world works, and then help them to integrate that understanding so that it's it out of that understanding comes changes in behaviors and wellness and all of that stuff. And that 
that idea has been the driving force in all my research, whether it's been on mindfulness or experiences of worldview transformation or um, some of my uh, current research, which is working on developing virtual reality approaches to shifting people's perspectives. So yeah, I think psychedelics is a, when done correctly, it's a very reliable tool. Wow. And I wasn't even aware of the the virtual reality work you're doing. Do you want to, Tell us a little bit about that real yeah, quick. Yeah, we're just, we're just start getting started. I'm working with Lauren Carpenter, who is a visiting scholar here at IONS, and he is the co-founder of Pixar Animation Studios and has oh, wow. two Oscars for having invented 3D landscape modeling and animation. So most of the animation you see today has part of his invention in it. And he's very interested in consciousness, uh, measurement of consciousness and the interaction with the physical world. Um, but he's also interested in this idea of using virtual reality to, number one, give people experiences that they can't otherwise have or not easily. So mm-hmm. um, we're starting on a project to create uh, induction of the overview effect. And we're, we'll be working with a programming team that did Apollo 11 to bring people into space and especially kind of introduce them to experiences like the one Edgar had and, you know, try to see if that can, because I don't know if you've been in virtual reality, but it's a very, very compelling illusion. You know, it's really yeah. pretty powerful. Yeah, I, I rode a weather balloon yeah, all the way yeah. up into the outer atmosphere. It was, it was a pretty amazing experience. It is, yeah. I mean, it's really amazing. And so we're hoping that we can do some positive perspective shifts through VR we're also hoping that we can use it in things like uh, pain relief. So if you imagine somebody is told to use a guided visualization that says, you know, let's say they have lower back pain and they're asked to visualize a cool waterfall going through their spine in VR, you can actually sure. look down and see a cool waterfall going through your spine, you know, and you could even enhance it with some um, vests that become cooler and, So you can really enhance people's mental ability to heal. And then the third thing is seeing if we can unlock some extended or latent human capacities through the use of VR where, you know, maybe it is true that people can connect with each other at a distance, but maybe if we put them in VR together, they'll be able to do it even more. You know, if they can have the Mm -hmm. illusion of seeing each other, even though their bodies are at a distance, you know, who knows what, who knows what we might be able to find. Um, you could induce out of body experiences in VR. So there's just a whole, a whole bunch of stuff that can be done that can't be done very well in, in physical reality, you know, in, in normal reality. Yeah. Yeah. So much more than just seeing a basketball game. Exactly. Wow. Yeah. I had no idea. That's awesome. So what else, what else are you working on? What should we look for from, you and your team and, and what are you guys looking to the, to the future well, Ions, to uncover? Yeah. IONS is really focusing on two things. One is um, called the IONS discovery lab. And that is going to be the largest study of transformational practices ever done. And what we do is we've got a set of about 10 computer stations here on our campus And on our campus, in addition to the science, we also have about 5,000 people a year who come through for various workshops on meditation, yoga, dance, shamanism, self-inquiry, you know, all kinds of different practices. And we're going to measure them before and after their courses or their retreats. Uh, looking at a number of well-being measures, also these ideas that we've been talking about around self-transcendence and feeling belonging and connected, mm-hmm. and then extended human capacities like the ability to sense into the future or to intuitively solve a problem as opposed to um, going through the normal sort of logical reasoning route and things like that. And so that will, over time, be able to collect data on thousands of people who engage in various kinds of practices. So that's one that we're very excited about. Yeah, that's exciting. Yeah, we're hoping to put it online so that people who aren't on our campus can also do it with their 
people who are going through their own classes or practices um, out in the world. And then the second Wait, one, I will, uh, if I, when I see that come out, I'll put a link to it. Oh, perfect. That's great. Yeah, I can send you a link. And then awesome. the second one is called Ions X, and that is kind of our moonshot. And that's where we are engaging in collaborative team science to reliably and robustly demonstrate mental interaction with the physical system. And so there's been a lot of research on this already um, through Dean's work and Marilyn and many others, but a lot of the results have been actually, while they're statistically significant, they're kind of small. They're not really uh, visible to the naked eye, you could say. And so we're really trying to come together, bring together all of our um, six scientists who are here at IONS and collaborators and kind of try to crack the code, you know, whether right. so we'll be trying to identify what are the best operators or senders who, what kind of people do we need to be able to try to do this? What are the best targets? Is it a person's body? Is it a cell culture? Is it a photon system? And then what are the moderators that need to be in place? You know, does it need to be in VR? Does it need to be somebody who's meditated for 30 years? And so this is a five-year project where we're really delving deeply. It's kind of like a, you know, Apollo program for the inner world right. or, you know, a Manhattan project, but for good things instead of bad things. <laughs> Yeah, that's what I was thinking about it. It sounds like 50 years from now, we're going to look back at this team launching these initiatives. Yeah, yeah. So that's that's, that's where it all started. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so that's all very, very exciting. And I guess the last thing is um, one of the things I've been working on personally is working in the world to help people who are working toward positive change, whether it's people who are working on climate change or people who are working on prison reform or, you know, any number of positive things that people are working for in the world, including politicians, and trying to equip them with these tools for transforming worldviews that we've developed over the last couple of decades here. Um, you find that a lot of people who are working for good, positive things in the world tend to not be as effective as they could be because they're using sort of outdated methods for getting their point across. Mm -hmm. And so we want to give them. Like what's an example of, what's an example of something that helps people get their point across better? Well, I mean, so one example would be, we think it's a really good idea to, um, to motivate people, let's say for something like climate change to get them really disgusted and upset and scared about what might happen if the world doesn't do it, you know, kind of, we're all going to die, we're, you know, 20 species are extinct every single day, you know, that kind of stuff. And the truth is, people can't really handle that kind of information. You know, that's not something that they can, in fact, they feel the opposite, they feel paralyzed, and overwhelmed, and it kind of makes them want to get away from the conversation. So instead, what we do is, we give them what we call the ecosystem of change. And we give them there's eight different factors that you can have present to make it more likely that somebody's going to listen to your point of view. So probably too much to go into now, but one example would be that when you're explaining something to somebody about something you want changed, if you can make sure to always include the problem, the solution, and a, and a, inspiring vision for what would happen if the solution was implemented. So that vision piece is often what's missing. Even the solution Mm. is missing. You know, there's a lot of like, we have to stop using fossil fuels. We have to stop. It's like, okay, we'll explain a little bit about the solution, but then explain, paint a picture for people of what the vision for the future would look like if we were successful in this. And then the last thing is just, We give people, I kind of jokingly call it Jedi powers, which is who you are as a change maker, you know, how you hold yourself, what kind of dignity, trustworthiness, authenticity, genuineness, powerful presence, how much are you connected to your own source of your inspiration instead of kind of ranting Mm. and raving and being harried and kind of 
implying that people are stupid if they don't listen to you, you know, that's a whole different approach. And so we teach people how to do that also. Yeah. And that, that loops right back into your, the good that you're doing with individuals and, and tying the, the spirituality and the, the awareness of consciousness into their, their whole beings. Exactly. The program in fact is called consciousness communication and change or C3. And we're doing right. online courses in the spring as well as uh, in-person programs here at IONS and then it's available if people want to bring us out to train people. So I can send you the links for those too. Okay, please do. Um, and I'll, I'll put those on the, uh, on the website. Uh, I think you've already, maybe already covered this, but are there any other breakthroughs that you see coming when it comes to consciousness, you know, or, or any of your work that you're hoping will, will eventually discover or come to an understanding about? Do you see any of those on the horizon? You know, I think that, um, you know, two things. One is that the the sort of bet we're making or the hypothesis, I guess, is that, you know, when people first discovered electricity, um, it was an invisible thing and mm -hmm. nobody really knew it was there for a really long time, you know. And then right. all of a sudden, somebody went like, wait a minute, why is there lightning? And why does my hair stand on end when the lightning strikes? And there must be an invisible force. And then, you know, it took a, a few hundred years before we realized that electricity is actually what animates our bodies. And then that we could capture it from the, you know, we could capture it and use it to light and heat yeah. our homes. And so it's possible that there really is this kind of interconnected fabric of reality that allows for a lot of the anomalies that we see to be not just imaginary, but real. And that there is healing energy and information that is available to us. Um, so that's kind of like the big picture um, that we're trying yeah, yeah. to get to. It may not be exactly like that. That might be like a crude metaphor because we can't understand it yet. Um, and it may all be imaginary. We don't know, but it's definitely worth looking into with the volume of these kinds of experiences. And then on the other side of things, the applied side, I just see a world where, you know, education, let's say grade school education for children all the way through to when they're a teenager um, doesn't just teach reading, writing, and arithmetic and critical thinking skills. It also teaches kids how to tap into their inner knowing and their sense of meaning and purpose, how to generate a sense of belonging, how to engage in practices of self-transcendence that engender compassion and empathy. Like these are things that we do want our kids to know or in any healthcare yeah. setting, you know, it's kind of crazy right now that um, you could go in today for a healthcare issue, and it's very likely that if you live in the West, your doctor would not offer a single mind-body or complementary method for you to engage in your own healing while you're also taking the medication or going through surgery or whatever the, the issue is. And that's just um, bordering on barbaric you know, it's like yeah you know there should always be when you go into a physical health place that the doctor says well okay so here's all the things you can do physically now let's talk about how you can utilize your um, mind body healing or your sense of community or your spiritual practices or even if you're not spiritual just how you can spend 10 minutes visualizing yourself in good health every day. Um, that's a very basic, obvious, low side effect, but probably high return um, kind of intervention. So that's really what we're up to is to try to discover more about the nature of reality and then to try to enhance education, healthcare, business, and um, even innovation so that people are more yeah. likely to be able to use these. Maybe, maybe they're just kind of like atrophied muscles at this point because we've been so hyper-focused on the rational physical side of things. Yeah. Well, I love that. I, I am truly inspired and I just hope 
that you guys are successful in, in either one of those or both, you know, because I think the changes you're going to bring about could be really uh, immense and powerful. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Is there anything else you want to get out there for everybody? Well, um, all of our work is supported just by members and people who are interested in this kind of work. We have a very strong and positive community. Um, we like to say these experiences are common, at, bordering on universal, and they're, uh, no, you know, normal, common, and intelligent, possible to study scientifically, and important. And so if you're someone who's had experiences like this, and you'd like to support the kind of work that I've talked about or connect with a community of people who are engaging with this aspect of life, uh, go to noetic.org, N-O-E-T-I-C.org. We've got a conference coming up next summer um, in Santa Clara, California called the Possibility Accelerator. And we'd love to have you there. It's an amazing conference. And just become a member of the community by going to our website and you'll uh, learn all kinds of things and can always visit our campus in California too. Wonderful. I will put a link to that because I know you have that uh, the community overview for getting yeah. like-minded people connected. So I'll put a link because you have, I mean, it's something as simple as following you guys on social media or like yep. you said, coming, coming to these events or even making a gift. So I will, uh, I'll put those links and hopefully, you know, we can get more and more people involved with this. Cause I think what you're doing is really powerful. Well, thank you so much, and thanks for doing the podcast. It's really helping get the word out there. Yeah, well, thank you. I really appreciate it. Every time I think I have a strong opinion, I talk to somebody smart like you, and my opinion starts to change. So. <laughs> great, great. <laughs> yeah, I, great, I greatly appreciate your time and your expertise here with uh, the Consciousness Podcast. All right. Thanks so much. That concludes another edition of the Consciousness Podcast. Thanks again for listening. Please find us at Facebook at facebook.com slash the Consciousness Podcast at our Twitter handle at ConchCast. And don't forget to subscribe to our feed at theconsciousnesspodcast.com. Thank you for listening.